President Biden said, for the first time, America is not at war. We don't see it, but maybe that's actually not true. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Perhaps the most powerful tool in building the American sentiment against our war in Vietnam was a freewheeling press. The very idea of a free press has been at the core of who and what it is to be America. In 1787, Thomas Jefferson said he preferred newspapers without government over government without newspapers. Well, the angry government of Richard Nixon learned the lesson well. The battle between an active, robust free press and the imperial presidency and supporting Congress has raged ever since, though quite quietly. In the late 60s, as some of us recall on the 6 o'clock TV news, nearly every night we saw American boys, yes, quite young men, in terrible situations in Vietnam, often coming home in body bags. They were killing and dying and really didn't know why. It was they, the soldiers, who started wearing peace symbols and calling for an end to the bloody, murderous madness. Nixon and others didn't like that being on TV. They sure as heck didn't want us to see that. They knew its power in shaping public opinion. Ah, if only wars could be made invisible. Today, we in America breathed a sigh of relief when Obama made sure our various attacks on the Middle East did not require, as he said, boots on the ground. The government has twisted itself into pretzels in recent decades to hide our wars, our wars, from us. But as, as Jefferson so presciently figured, the struggle between the government warmakers and the voting public has gone on without a break. Today, the warmakers have enjoyed remarkable success in plying their trade, often without the inconvenience of the awareness of the American public. Our guest today is journalist and political analyst Norman Solomon, whose new book is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Norman Solomon, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. A pleasure. Thank you, Bert. Norm Solomon is co-founder of the RootsAction.org and executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. What a concept, accuracy. <laughs> the National Council of Teachers of English honored him with the George Orwell Award for Distinguished Contribution to Honesty and Clarity in Public Language. His op-ed articles have appeared in a range of newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times. His previous books include War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death, and Made Love Got War, Close Encounters with America's Warfare State. Well, thanks again for being with us. I, I once had the pleasure and honor to ride in a taxi with the great, brave patriot Daniel Ellsberg. He was a hero to a great many Americans for bravely telling the truth about our hidden war efforts in Indochina. He got it out. I'll get the truth out. So many of us thought, well, that does it for the government keeping its citizens in the dark. They can never do that again, thanks to his patriotic courage. There was that glimmer of hope for a more robust, unrestrained, free press. Um, well, what happened? Well, what happened was really a confluence of so many factors. Uh, so much power vested in the news media, uh, increasingly consolidated. Uh, just a few corporations now controlling most of the news and information flow through ownership and then advertising. And also, as uh, you alluded to, Bert, a 
revamping of the strategies of the war makers, you might say, to make wars more invisible, less uh, apparent to the public, and also in recent years to just have fewer Americans directly involved. The cliche is apt boots on the ground. There are just fewer of them, which makes the wars for Americans seem more abstract. Yes. Yeah, it does. And then we can't see it. That's so important to the to the war makers, to Obama and others. They use drones and uh, so many other weapons that uh, we didn't see, but the people who were killed kind of did see. And after, you know, Daniel Ellsberg, more recently, people like Edward Snowden have also taken great personal risk to leak the truth, the truth about American war crimes. And yes, they were war crimes. The attitude of the average American... I got to tell you, it really shocked me. Many people considered him a traitor. And I had more than one person suggest that he be put up against a wall and shot. If you talk about that dramatic change, please, I never would have expected that. Well, it has been um, increasingly bipartisan. And I, that is a concern. And um, as a uh, progressive Democrat, it's something that has alarmed me greatly, as it has many other folks that when you go back to the beginning of this century, after 9-11 and the tragedy of that terrible event, uh, for a while there was a, a, a unity of support attacking Afghanistan. Uh, I note in my book that fully 90% of the public told Gallup poll at the time of the attack on Afghanistan in October of 2001 that they supported it, and only 5%, so one out of 20, uh, only one out of 20 opposed that attack. So there was a bit of unity, but then uh, when the Bush administration unfolded, when a few, within a few years after the invasion of Iraq, when people realized uh, so widely how much they had been lied to by the Bush administration around the non-existent weapons of mass destruction of supposedly the Saddam Hussein government, we had a, uh, a willingness among certainly most Democrats at the grassroots and increasing numbers of Democrats in Congress to say, no, we don't support this continuous war uh, in Iraq. So it was not a bipartisan consensus by any means. Uh, as the Bush administration unfolded around continuing this endless war based on basically a lot of deception. But something has happened, and uh, Bert, you referred to uh, President Obama, and whatever his virtues, mm -hmm. the reality is that when he came into office, he did a historic move to make war-making and endless war to make it bipartisan. It didn't have to be that way when he came into the presidency at the beginning of 2009. Uh, Obama could have said, we're going to turn the page. We're not going to continue this perpetual war stance. But instead, he actually greatly escalated uh, the war in Afghanistan. And here in uh, summer of 2023, we know how that went. So mm. these are tragic directions uh, politically and in terms of media coverage. Uh, that our country has gone in. Yeah, it's it's been surprising, and I, and I must say, I expected 
having been an old veteran of the anti-war movement against the war, our war in Vietnam, that when Bush invaded Iraq, that people would rise up and say, hey, this is crazy. Iraq had nothing to do with it. But yeah. boy, was that a big historic change What that people didn't do it. The, the media just absolutely fell in line as if it was the old Soviet Union just... Uh, you know, echoing what the the official government line, and and people didn't protest. And I don't know if it's because people thought, well, there's nothing we can do, or or what the heck it was. And it wasn't that war in Iraq. It wasn't a secret war. Uh, it was it was fairly open. But uh, people were became cheerleaders on that. And but there there weren't any boots on the ground. Comments on that, if you would please. Well, the boots on the ground became fewer and fewer, more mm-hmm. and more reliance uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and today on uh, what President Biden two years ago uh, very fondly referred to in a speech at the United Nations to over the horizon air power. And so mm-hmm. that capacity with drones and other ways for the U.S. to be or think of itself as literally and figuratively above it all, to kill people without uh, U.S. soldiers being in combat on the ground, that plays very well in the U.S. news media. It plays very well in terms of Capitol Hill and the White House. It's seen as uh, politically and in terms of public relations a real plus. Mm. One of the main reasons uh, why I wrote this book, and actually the first words I wrote of it uh, were the eventual title, War Made Invisible, is that it's the hidden nature of ongoing U.S. warfare that's so insidious. Uh, You referred to a few minutes ago, Bert, the whole concept of democracy and the free press, and Jefferson talking about uh, the necessity of newspapers of the day, even more important than government. Well, in civics class, and I don't think I was alone on this, I think millions of us Uh, went to school and we were taught that democracy requires the informed consent of the governed. But truly, when it comes to war and peace, what's being done in our names with our tax dollars by the Pentagon, we don't have the informed consent of the governed. We have the uninformed pseudo-consent. That's not democracy. And if people might think, well, uh, this is a problem perhaps, but it's an abstraction affect me, uh, that would think a big mistake to Mm. make that assumption. Whether you live in New Hampshire or Massachusetts or California or anywhere else, the fact is that what Martin Luther King Jr. referred to as the madness of militarism in 1967 is in transmuted form still with us in 2023. And Dr. King referred to what he called the destructive demonic suction tube which is Mm. really a phrase we should remember, a demonic suction tube that siphoned vast resources away from health care, education, housing in this country to fatten the coffers of the military contractors for war making. And again, that is a huge problem right now. It certainly is. And I do find it amazing. I mean, we have a theoretically bipartisan Congress, House and Senate, and they will cut, cut, cut everything, but don't even think, 
don't even suggest any idea of cutting uh, the War Department, also you know known now as the Defense Department. It's it's just, and does that make us any more secure? Uh, and if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a part of democracy that people don't often see. In fact, the powers that be don't want us to see our invisible wars. Our guest today is Norman Solomon. His new book is War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. And it affects not just the people who are being bombed and killed, but it affects us all as well, even though we don't see it. It's, as you say, beyond the horizon. And, you know, I wonder about actual national security. Uh, A perpetual state of war has existed. Uh, It's almost entirely invisible to the American public since 9-11. How convenient. I hate to think of how convenient it was. I mean, that thought is just like, how can that be? But I wonder about national security. And I remember the they talk about invisible wars over the horizon. Cambodia, very far from here, there was the secret bombing of Cambodia in 1970. And somehow, I don't think it was a secret from the people of Cambodia, the bombing, the carpet bombing, the massive bombing. Today, on TV, we see Russia's war on Ukraine every day. But if you were to ask the average person on the street, what, if any, wars is the U.S. currently involved in? I suspect you'd get blank stares. What, what is going on that we are in the dark about? I mean, how many... There's no secret bombing of Cambodia, but uh, what kind of invisible wars are there at, at this uh, date in uh, mid to late 2023? Well, it's a great question that can... Uh, be met with some answers. At the same time, a lot of it is kept secret. We have special operations units, as my book points out, in well over 100 countries, which is really staggering. Most countries in the world have U.S. special operations units stationed there, and they are almost by definition secret. But we do know that the United States has troops on the ground, about a thousand, including in combat in Syria, Uh, There are also uh, airstrikes in Syria. There are airstrikes in Somalia. There are troops in many countries in Africa, some of them engaged in combat, Mm -hmm. some of them engaged in training. The air cover has been involved. And there are other even more insidious aspects. There was uh, just a coup in Niger. Well, we didn't get media coverage except in The Intercept and some progressive outlets about the fact that the man who took over the government, the military um, officer who uh, came out on top engineering uh, the coup was trained by the U.S. military. And in point of fact, that's not an anomaly. The great journalist who I cite in the book, Nick Terse, has pointed out that many, Mm. many times, and he documents the countries and the names, many times Democratic governments in recent years have been overthrown by men, and they are men, men who were trained explicitly by the Pentagon. So it's a way of undermining the possibility for democracy and stability in many countries in Africa. We have, uh, according to the uh, leadership and the scholarship at Brown University, an excellent program called 
costs of war. We have a wider, a much wider counterinsurgency, so-called counterterrorism activity by the U.S. military now than was true 10 or 15 years ago. So it's very widespread. It's extremely expensive. And I would note to people that President Biden has signed record military budgets mm. in the last few years. And he's always done it with a smile. He's always done it in the Oval Office, ironically enough, at the time when people celebrate the Prince of Peace in late December. And these huge military budgets are there for a reason. They're a reason uh, that involves tremendous profits for Raytheon, uh, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, uh, other uh, military aerospace contracting companies. And, Bert, you were talking about the movement against the war in Vietnam, and it reminds me that back then there was an anti-war slogan, a sardonic, ironic, and angry one that went something like this, uh, war is profitable, invest your son. Mm. Well, now, with relatively few uh. U.S. soldiers in combat, we might say war is profitable, invest in McDonnell Douglas or mm. the current incarnation of these military contractors. Wow. Yeah, it's so clean and neat. There's no messy blood lying around there. The boots are not on the ground, but the, it, yes. it, it goes on. And language is so powerful. You know, after, as you say, after the Second World War, it was called the War Department. Well, that's exactly what it was. But today, well, nah, it's not the War Department. It's the Defense Department. And there's the Department of Homeland Security, which to many of us sounds eerily like something about the fatherland, homeland security. Talk about how language eases our concerns with military violence and distances us from its impact. The use of language, very powerful. What first can be very startling, we become accustomed to and accommodated to. And you give a great example. Uh, to many ears, the uh, Department of Homeland Security did sound like the fatherland. It sounded uh, vaguely Third, third Reichish, and yet yep. over time, yep. you know, we are we are used to it. And I flag the lowercase d word defense. Routinely, this astronomical military budget is called in conversation and in writing a defense budget. It's not a defense budget. If it hmm. was truly for defense, it would be much lower than it is. But we have uh, become accustomed to hearing and, and referring to it as a lowercase d defense budget. Another example is the term national security. Right. We're told that agencies like the Pentagon and the CIA and the National Security Agency that they are dedicated to national security. What about the climate emergency? What about mm. the need to safeguard the planet and the natural world for future generations upon which all life depends? What about that in the context of national security? It's not at all the context or the connotation that the term is used. So it really has acculturated us to the assumption, often unconscious, that what gives our nation and us individually security is militarism, is what Dwight Eisenhower called the military-industrial mm -hmm. complex, 
what we now might call the military-industrial intelligence surveillance complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that. That's really, it's it's not good for democracy. It really, really undermines democracy. And you know, the power of, of TV. I don't think they got it initially in the early days of the war in Vietnam how important it was. And but it seems like the people who were against the war didn't learn as much as the people who were for the war. <laughs> the war makers who were making a lot of money, uh, keeping their eyes on the TV and you know keeping their advertisers happy, they paid attention to what happened as a result of TV coverage you know, in the late 60s. What, what do you, I, I, this is curious to me, what do you mean when you say, even if shown on television in all its grisly detail, warfare has been and continues to be contained by that electric electronic box? It's really the limits of a medium which is brought to people so far away from and in such a different way from what people actually experience on the ground. So, yes, I think it would be very valuable, and unfortunately, it's not very common at all for news media, say TV or radio, to really push the limits of that particular medium to convey to people the suffering by civilians and others because of a war going on, particularly when a U.S. uh, military force is engaged, well, that would be much better than what we're getting these days and have gotten for a long time, which is the absence of even an effort to convey the suffering from U.S. warfare, although the limits of the media have been pushed when it comes to the terrible war in Ukraine and the suffering because of the Russian invasion. Uh, Those efforts have been very strong by Uh, the U.S. mainstream media to convey. Yes. But to be realistic, the cliche that TV brought war into American living rooms was complete nonsense. There's nothing like a real war being in the middle of one to sit in your home and watch a screen and be able to get up and uh, Mm -hmm. go to the refrigerator and turn it on and off Uh, There's nothing like those two experiences, and yet we've been encouraged to believe, and this would Mm. extend now to our our cell phones and all the rest of it, uh, we might be encouraged to believe, hey, this uh, media coverage is really conveying to us uh, so that we viscerally understand what these wars are like for the people in the middle of them, and I think that's really self-delusion. Yeah, because it, it kind of uh, keeps it at more than an arm's length away. We can just get up and, and, and shut it off. So much entertainment. Oof. <laughs> I, you know, there's these uh, video games that uh, particularly young men are so into that, uh, you know, just uh, smash them up and the, the movies that uh, it's, it's just kind of, it's like it's not real. But the people on the ground... And the idea of national security, I mean, it's such a good phrase. Of course you want to be secure. But what, what you know, we've, we've had this perpetual war uh, since 9-11, uh, allegedly the war on terror. Uh, and, you know, I wonder about the intent 
behind the war on terror uh, in, in terms of maintaining perpetual military endeavor. I mean, it sounds so good. Terror? Who knows? Nobody wants terror. And uh, the idea of having it over there, <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, so many other wars. Well, we got to fight them over there so they don't come here. That was the case in the First World War. Mm, of course, then we got rather directly involved in it. But keeping it at an arm's length away. And I wonder... This, this war on terror and the use of words, even though Truman spoke of his concern about what he called war profiteers, uh, the, the, the Cold War that came about from Truman's uh, policy, the Truman Doctrine, uh, guaranteed the solidity and, and security, <laughs> financial security of, of uh, war profiteers. And I wonder about, you know, zipping forward, uh, if there this war on terror, if there was ever an intent to have a victory, was there an intent to result in some kind of victory? What, what about that? Well, the idea of victory over terrorism or terror is, when you really scrutinize it, actually absurd. Uh, I yes. quote in my book, War Made Invisible, a statement by General William Odom a year after 9-11. He was interviewed on C-SPAN, and he said, you will never win a war on terror because terrorism is not an entity. It's a tactic. He said, you might as well say we're going to have a war on night attacks. But it was a very useful, and has always been since 9-11, a very useful propaganda term, if you will, uh, for those who want to, or at least parrot those who want to, continue to have these extremely lucrative ongoing wars, foreseeably without any end whatsoever. And when I really looked into this for research, I realized that the intent, and Bert, I think that's a good um, question to focus on, what was the intent of yeah. the war makers? There was never an intent for the so-called war on terrorism to end. It can't end if we take at face value the vows that were made by President Bush right after 9-11. He spoke at the Washington National Cathedral three days Mm -hmm. after September 11th, 2001. And he said, we will rid evil from the world. Can you imagine? <laughs> this was a president publicly declaring that the United States of America will rid evil from the world. Well, you can't think of a more blank check calendar without end mm. for warfare than that. Mm. Mm. And uh, so many questions with that, like evil. What is evil? I kind of think the guy that's on trial or just got charged yet again is a tad evil. But, uh, <laughs> you know, evil is out there. That's the beautiful thing about uh, uh, war made invisible. And our guest again today on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive is its author, Norm Solomon. Uh, war Made Invisible is his new book, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military machine and one thing that's that's always it's, it's frustrating to me i yeah i'm a democrat 
and and I I like Biden's domestic plan, but it almost doesn't matter who's president. The same policy. It's like the Pentagon. You know, they're like above it all. The people who make the war, the people who make the weapon systems. They, they, you know, if, if they don't, the only president there's going to be is one who's approved by these guys. Uh, it's it's just amazing to me how uh, poli- foreign policy doesn't change. We can change domestic policy, but foreign policy just doesn't ever seem to change. And uh, there's another interesting quote was, uh, I mean, you, you would think, I thought, you know, after Vietnam, back in you know 1975, when when the war finally ended, of course we'd learn the lesson. There was no question. How could we not learn the lesson? Which is, do not try to militarily impose a government on a foreign nation without their consent. Doesn't work clearly. And how many guys and and women did we lose? And they lost how many millions? Who knows? But the war makers knew. That lesson could not be in American history books, and history books are very important for what we come to believe. Uh, And fascinating, as you point out, by the end of the Gulf War in 1991, President George H.W. Bush boasted, by God, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. What is the Vietnam syndrome, and why is it How does it play into what you're talking about here, uh, war made invisible? Why is it so important to uh, the concept of a Vietnam syndrome? I wonder who ever thought of that, but boy, he probably made a lot of money. Yes, it's a great PR term that was really popularized um, at the end of the 1980s and into, as you refer to, uh, 1991 at the end of the six-week Gulf War that took, according to the Pentagon, about 100,000 Iraqi lives. And it's a phrase that was utilized, and sometimes still is, to stigmatize and trash the idea that there should be constraints and restraint on U.S. Mm. foreign policy and military intervention in other countries. After the Vietnam War, uh, there was a real uh, chastening, uh, chastising of the military intervention uh, arrogance that had uh, taken right. the United States into Vietnam. And so uh, the military uh, pro-intervention forces and tendencies were, as the saying goes, back on their heels. They did not like that. They mm-hmm. didn't want the lessons of Vietnam to be that you can't go shoot them up into different countries and invade to work your will when you decide it's geopolitically advantageous and profitable for military contractors. So 1980s was a time of retrenchment and beginning to claw back the concept that the U.S. is the world's policeman and has the right and duty to intervene with military force when it so chooses. And so we'll remember in the 1980s, there were two invasions that uh, began to uh, reestablish this sort of twisted pseudo-principle. One was in 1983 under Ronald Reagan when the tiny island of Grenada was invaded under false pretenses, and then under the first President Bush in late 1989, the invasion of Panama, a little bigger low-hanging fruit, again based on 
extreme deception. And then uh, the military industrial horses, the horsemen and the horses of the apocalypse, mm. you might say, they were really feeling their oats. So 1991 <laughs> came along, and the uh, Gulf War that I was just referring to, uh, at the end of which the quote that you mentioned, Bert, from the first President Bush came to the fore, a very rejoicing uh, talk that he gave about uh, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. The air power that was used was ferocious and uh, lethal to many people, uh, many Iraqis, during the Gulf War of 1991. And you may remember uh, those who were old enough, who were of read in the uh, uh, retrospective history book, tremendous celebration. Mm. 90% support at the end of the Gulf War for President George Herbert Walker, Booker Tate Parade, Norman Schwarzkopf, the uh, general, a great hero, Colin Powell at the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a great hero, all kinds of celebration. Well, the momentum really grew then. And then under uh, President Clinton, 1999, uh, the 78 straight days of air bombing of Kosovo and Yugoslavia, including use, by the way, of cluster bombs, mm. that also mm. was celebrated uh, under uh, Clinton. And so then it set the stage for what we have been experiencing, or many people around the world have been experiencing for just about 22 years, the so-called war on terror. <sighs> Yeah, and so much of this is secret, and I, I don't know how I ran into a few years ago a, a study of uh, our war against Panama, which nobody even remembers. It was, it was really brutal. It did some really amazing things to the people of Panama, and you know, it may be secret from us, but it sure as heck ain't secret from the people there. And you assert that the frequent killing of civilians, upward of upwards of three hundred sixty-four thousand over the past. 20 years, as you say, has been a predictable, even inevitable result of U.S. government's policy priorities. 364,000 civilians killed. How, you know, as I said earlier, we all want national security. How do you think that, you know, these, these people, you know, they're members of families, they have wives and husbands and children and cousins, they're dead. Uh, and they lost limbs and lives. How has that affected real progress toward achieving that elusive goal of national security? What do you think that's done? It's it's a secret from us, but not from them. Well, even on its own terms, it's counterproductive because we're creating terrorists in search of enemies. We are creating such anger and hostility in the Muslim world in many different countries and uh, the reality is that, in effect, the attitude in policy, if not clearly articulated from the United States, is that there are certain people whose deaths really matter, deaths really tragic, their grief is of great importance. And then there are other people who, right. in this case, are at the other end of U.S. firepower, and they don't. They don't count they don't is count. the tacit or explicit understanding. Literally, they, they aren't counted, and they aren't counted in terms of being human beings whose lives really matter. And the number that you just referred to, uh, more than 350,000, was arrived at by meticulous research at Brown University at the Cost of War Project. Uh -huh. And I should say that 
That is civilians who were directly killed uh. by these U.S. so-called war on terror operations, the post-9-11 wars. That's just a fraction because the Brown University studies show that for every civilian directly killed, several have been indirectly killed by these wars through destruction of infrastructure, mm. of the environment, of healthcare, mm -hmm. of institutions in those societies. So just recently, uh, the Brown University study came out with a follow-up and found that when you add up the direct and indirect deaths from the post-9-11 U.S. wars, the number is 4.5 million deaths. Hey. Wow. And the people of the world, they know who's doing that. They know who's yeah. doing that. So, I, you know, and it's true. One could say, well, since we've had this, you know, perpetual state of war, there haven't been any more 9-11s. And doesn't that show that it's making us more secure? What do you say to that? Well, there are uh, documents out of the State Department acknowledging that if the goal was to reduce, if not eliminate, the number of terrorist groups and terrorist killings, um, actually that goal has not only not been met, but the opposite is the case. There is far more terrorism and far more deaths from terrorist attacks in the world in recent years than at the time of 9-11. So it's been, it's been counterproductive. And while mm -hmm. we haven't had large terrorist right. attacks in the United States since then, what we have had is deaths by other means, deaths by thousands of cuts, literally uh -huh. cuts from the budgets because of what Dr. King, Martin Luther King, called the madness of militarism, that what he referred to as the demonic suction tube. So you could, uh, I think, plausibly make a strong case, a very strong one, that U.S. militarism has taken hundreds of thousands of American lives through the depletion of health care and housing and basic resources that people depend on for their lives in this country. And one thing I do wonder about, I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, we don't see it here. The, the, the title of, the, of Norman, our guest today, Norman Sullivan's book is War Made Invisible, How uh, America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. There's a racial aspect, is there not? I mean, Lord knows during Vietnam there was that... Uh, that term gooks, making making the enemy less than human, somehow less than. And I, I wonder about, uh, you know, how much of that is an aspect. And, you know, let's face it, the right wing these days in, in this country, lyingly, dishonestly calling themselves conservative, they're really far right wing. They're white supremacists. There's no question about it. And, you know, this whole... Uh, I, you know, having America as the policeman of the world, we've beaten the Vietnam syndrome. We are number one, USA. You and, and that whole macho stuff. There is, it seems that there's a racial aspect to that. And uh, the fact is that it's a huge world. What seven billion people, something like that. Uh, I don't think whites are the majority anymore. And what does that say about uh, national security and about our policy? And Boy, it, it just can't continue like this. Your thoughts? The phrase that you use is actually quite telling, and I hadn't thought of it quite this way. Policemen of the world. What is it about policemen, police officers in the United States, that 
has come more to the fore in recent years. Um, the killings of African Americans uh, who have been defenseless, uh, we know uh, from video how terribly this has occurred. We had uh, the uprisings um, of nonviolent, largely protests in recent years for right. Black Lives Matter because of these um, very widespread incidences. And often, usually it's not captured. We don't even know about it. It's not captured on camera. Right. Well, so then if we think of the term policeman of the world, then the term policeman in our own country has uh -huh. a connotation of uh, racial bias yes. that is tilted against people of color, most of all against black men. And I think that this reality of U.S. foreign policy and war making is hidden in plain sight. And it took me quite a while working on this book before it fully dawned on me that virtually everyone who has been at the other end of U.S. firepower during the so-called war on terror has been a person of color. Mm. And so that is something that is virtually missing entirely from all U.S. media discourse about racism and the term that we now have heard more and more, systemic racism. Yeah. We know if people are paying attention, we know that there is systemic racism in this country. It uh, manifests itself in law enforcement, oh. in the judicial system, in prisons, in banks that give loans uh -huh. for mortgages, uh -huh. in schools, in so many different ways. And yet somehow we are tacitly through omission encouraged to believe that systemic racism only affects domestic policy. Uh. It's absurd. And when we really take the time and have the discourse to think about it and talk about it, we have, I think, the opportunity to recognize and then change the reality that racism is part of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. Uh. war making. And I'm very uh, explicit about this in the book. The U.S. does not bomb countries because people of color live there. But if people of color live in a country, that makes it easier for the U.S. to engage in warfare in those countries because of individual and institutional racism in the United States. Invisible. We need to keep it invisible. And that's one of the things the, uh, the far right these days, the uh, Republican Party, uh, you know, they... they 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 want to keep themselves in charge. They don't want to be replaced, as it were, by people of color. It's so important to keep the others invisible and under our control. And I want to ask: There's there's a few books about war and war making. Uh, what what prompted you to to write your book? What what uh, what's the angle of it, and uh, what was the unmet need for it? Well, what I really felt was missing from the existing range of books um, is the hidden character of current U.S. wars increasingly in this century. I'd written a previous book that came out in 2005 uh, called War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. 
And War Made Easy came out a few years after the uh, Iraq invasion and before that the Afghanistan invasion. And it really chronicled the propaganda techniques, the roles of news media and politicians, people in power, to convince us that wars are necessary to begin and continue. So I had this um, really strong impression as the years went by after that, uh, that those techniques were continuing, but something else was gradually taking place. It was almost ineffable. It wasn't being named in public or really examined, but it was having a tremendous effect on our attitudes Mm. uh, towards war and, in, in fact, the politics of war. And that was that they were becoming less and less visible, less and less conscious, more and more like white noise in the society. And at first, when I thought to write the sequel to that, a kind of a sequel, I thought, well, maybe I'll just title the book More War Made Easy. And then I realized that, yes, the warfare is continuing, but it's changing. And the domestic, inside the U.S. perceptions of the wars or non-perceptions of the wars, that has all really undergone a shift. And that's how I I got to the focus Mm -hmm. of War Made Invisible. Interesting. Yes, there has been a perception shift. And your book tells the little-known story of the rise and precipitous fall of TV reporter and anchor Ashley Banfield as a cautionary tale of journalists being punished for straying from the official narrative. What what does her experience uh, reveal? Yeah, the cautionary tale that you refer to is, is very important in many ways because it not only, in this case, basically destroyed the big-time career of an up-and-coming TV journalist, but it also was an object lesson to other journalists who saw what happened. And the tacit message, not so tacit actually, was don't go there, don't do this kind of thing. Ashley Banfield was somebody who was a rising star at MSNBC and NBC. She'd won awards elsewhere. She came to MSNBC, she happened to be uh, at the uh, World Trade Center area at the time of 9-11. She reported live. She was dispatched by MSNBC and then NBC uh, to the Middle East, uh, to Afghanistan, to many countries uh, in the region in the lead up to and then uh, during the initial time of the Uh, attacks on Afghanistan and Iraq, and she reported on the U.S. invasion of Iraq in uh, the early spring of 2003. And then from a career standpoint, she made a big mistake. Mm. She told the truth about the limits of U.S. coverage of U.S. wars. She was invited to give a speech at a college in Kansas. And so she flew there. And in her speech, she said, there's a big difference between coverage and journalism. And just because we saw on TV, what happens when the missiles are launched, that doesn't mean we really understand what happens when the missiles land. Ashley Banfield said that, I can assure you that it's not just a bunch of dust and smoke where the missiles actually land. 
as soon as she gave the speech, her top management bosses back in New York City at NBC freaked out. Mm. They issued statements saying, Ms. Banfield does not speak for us. She does not speak for the network. She did not mean to impugn the integrity of her colleagues. And when she came back uh, to Manhattan, she was repositioned from her previous office to a tape closet and was stuck there for almost a year. She was not able to get out of her contract and at NBC and other comparable sized networks, her career was done. It was over. She had hit a wall because she dared to speak a truth that the TV networks and the mass media of the United States in general just didn't want people to hear. Wow. And I occasionally tune TV to BBC, and it's amazing how much, how many stories there are that because it's beyond the horizon, if you will. We don't hear about these things, but it really does affect us in the United States. I mean, we we are not uh, uh, separate. Uh, and the whole idea of, you know, a war on terrorism is that we are affected by uh, the sentiment in the rest of the world. And there's so much going on, for example, in Africa now. And uh, they, they don't, you know, Network TV is entertainment. It's entertainment. Uh, The things that they choose to have as actual stories and the stories that they tell, as you just described, you know, it's all about revenue. TV news, so-called news, it's, it's all about revenue. Keeping the advertisers happy so that they will keep buying ads and keeping, you know, millions of American eyes glued to that screen. Does that result in keeping America in the dark and providing a platform for more invisible wars? It really goes to the ways in which we are not getting the informed consent of the governed. Uh, Uh, When we're uninformed, then how can we give meaningful consent? Even worse than that, when we are disinformed, when we're Mm. told and we believe what isn't actually the case, that's arguably worse than even just being ignorant. There's the saying, it's not what you don't know that's so dangerous as much as what you think you know that just ain't so. And you refer to the entertainment, the high priority given to keeping the eyeballs and the ears uh, tuned in. Right, right. And so it's uh, it's been called um, infotainment, mm-hmm. uh, news as infotainment. We could take that a step further. We could call it disinfotainment. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, that's what we're getting through omission and commission. And, uh, Bert, I think you're quite right that in this world, which because of the climate emergency, because right. of COVID, because of so many ways, we cannot separate ourselves from the rest of the world, even if we wanted to, because our fate on this globe is really intertwined. The thing applies. What goes around comes around. Yes, it's true. And and you, you're arguing, uh, Norm Solomon, for a single standard of human rights in a time of war, regardless of who is involved. That's an interesting statement. What, what would that look like? And is couldn't people say, oh, that's just Pollyanna-ish naivete? How is that it's in actually, our interest? 
it's really crucial because in the long run, if we're going to, through our words and actions, tell the rest of the world, do as we say, mm. not as we do, that's not going to be convincing. <laughs> it's not going to play well, and it's not going to make the relations with the rest of the world constructive for anybody, certainly not for us, because the distrust, anger, sometimes rage that we create is going to come back on us. So we have an opportunity to have a real window on the world. I mean, you could use the metaphor of driving. If your windshield is all fogged up, you're going to have a problem. You would actually, even if you might not want to see what you are going to see, it's better that you see it. And quite clearly, I think, we can say with, with true accuracy that U.S. mass media, when it covers the rest of the world, so often tints our window on the world red, white, and blue. And if your window is tinted red, white, and blue, you're not going to see clearly. Wow. Yeah, we don't want to see. We oftentimes don't want to see. And the the TV media, the networks, they know we don't want to see. And there's... It's it's spectacle. That's what sells spectacle. Just keep keep those eyes and ears on the screen. You say war. Your book War Made Invisible contends that quote an imperative is to insist on telling vital truths and acting on them. What say more about that? What can Americans do at this point? So often, you know, the the media and the uh, military industrial etc. complex wants us wants us to believe we are powerless. We are not powerless. What, what, t- tell us what we can do, and how is it imperative to insist on telling vital truths and acting on them? And how, you know, what kind of uh, media can we use for that? We have potential power from the grassroots, and all the changes that we can be proud of in this country for many decades is because not handed down from on high, but people... Right. At the grassroots, organized, they were willing and able to talk to each other, to communicate, to engage in activism, and do organizing that actually has an impact that not only speaks truth to power, but speaks truth about power so we can demystify mm. our true situation, to really have an accurate map of our society of power in the United States so we can navigate effectively and accurately I think part of the crucial elements is to support media that are willing and able to challenge the dominant corporate narrative, the militaristic narrative. If you hear a radio program, Mm -hmm. and I would really say this is one of them, you hear a radio program that is going against militaristic corporate grain, it should be supported. We need to develop ways to sustain independent media that is not part of the disinfotainment industry. And that's part of the picture. And whether we're doing electoral work or community organizing that has nothing to do with elections, recognize that we do have the potential power is really crucial because what mass media tell us to do, what we Mm. would get, for instance, watching days and days of television on commercial networks is go out and buy things and vote once in a while. That's not enough to change our future for the better. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, this is all, oh, it's not Pollyannish. It's not, we're not just talking about doing these good things out of the goodness of our heart. Heck no. It's in our interest 
to make these changes. Fascinating stuff. Good uh, discussion about uh, things what we need to know about. And, uh, you know, the idea of driving with our windshield intentionally fogged up, not such a good idea, but that's what we've been doing for a while. The book is called War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Its author, Norman Solomon, has been our guest. Thank you so much for being with us today and uh, for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Bert. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much. Smoking gun to show how the West was won.